This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So, if you've seen the title, uh, The Doctrine of Change, uh, you have an idea of where we're going. It's it, this this. This message is so utterly obvious. Everything I'm going to say is so elementary, and yet I have a hunch that sometimes when we just put things together, uh, you put three puzzle pieces together, they just suddenly make sense, and you can see things. Because we oftentimes don't know if to resist change or to embrace change. And so the key question, is change a good thing or a bad thing, becomes very, very significant in our life as Christians. I am... In the modern Christian world, we have something known as change. And if you were to ask me, is it a good change? I'd say, well, it depends on which slice you're looking at. For instance, we have uh, a movement in Christianity that became very, very popular over the past decade uh, that actually was called the New Christian. And they're in the bookstores, Barnes & Noble and Borders. There were big stacks of books called the New Christian. And they were changing what the Word of God said to alter it so that it would be more pleasing to the culture in which we live. You ask me, is that a good change? I'd say no. Uh, However, within this same Christian infrastructure, there is a work of grace that is working upon believers to change them from being foul to being like Christ, to being selfish to becoming selfless. It's called sanctification. Is that a good change? I'd say yes. So in the same group of people, we can have two very different forms of change. And so it's a hard question to know how to answer simply. Uh, If you ever see a pastor who rises up and has a great influence and then suddenly changes and changes his priorities in his life and begins to serve himself and ends up falling from his position because of whether it's an immoral choice, uh, you could answer it yourself. Is that a good or a bad change? It's a change. And it's within the church. However, it's not necessarily good. Now, out of that, there can still be another change. And that is this man that has fallen can still choose to change again. And that's why this idea of change is a hard one because it has so much nuance to it and there's very different forms of it. So, like I said, this message is going to be very, very simple, very straightforward. I'm going to use a history that I'm very intimately familiar with, and that's the history here in this environment, to show you this idea of change. My son, fear thou the Lord and the king, and meddle not with them that are given to change. Well, don't hang out with Eric Ludy then. Am I given to change? Well, this is, this is an interesting uh, scripture, and so I just wanted to help us unpack this. The idea, here's three different translations for it. Don't associate with rebels. Don't join with rebellious officials. Don't join with those who do otherwise. The idea of change in this, in the, in the Hebrew, shana, means a fool, one who makes a mistake and then repeats it. One who doesn't learn from his first error and does it a second time. 
So they're given to change in the sense that they know what they ought to do, but they, instead of doing what they should do, they do otherwise, is the concept. They change from the right and continue to do the wrong. So very simply put, there's another proverb that says it's, uh, well, this is my paraphrase of the one first. Do not hang out with those who shift from what they know to do and do that which they know they ought not to do. And very simply put in Proverbs 26, 11, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. Don't hang out with someone that is prone to that behavior. Change. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? I remember I was at a, a very large uh, venue, uh, 50,000, I don't remember what it was. Uh, I think Nathan was with me. Matt Powell was with me at that one too. And uh, I remember the leader saying to me, the, the man that puts these together, and I had been invited to it, I, I want to say like 10 years before with Leslie. And uh, Leslie and I had come, and, and he had said to me at this time, he said, you know what? You and Leslie are two of the rarest people that I've seen in this industry. Most people that are musicians and speakers, 10 years passes, and they've completely changed. Most of the people that I invited to this 10 years ago live completely other lives. And that was an extremely sad statement, but most of the famous musicians, even 10 years ago, have gone off the deep end. Most of those that spoke, there's only a few speakers at these things, it's mostly a music festival, most of the speakers don't even speak anymore, or what's happened to their life is completely abysmal. It's like, well, what in the world's wrong? And so there's change, and there's change. That helped to clarify things, didn't it? Well, uh, if it's good or bad, that depends on which sort of change it is. Is it a shift away from life or a shift, or a shift towards life? Introducing leaven, otherwise known as yeast. This came from, a, I was having a conversation with Nathan about this, and he said, Dan McConaughey uh, brought up something about leaven the other day, and so I decided to look into it. It's an extremely fascinating statement in Scripture. So just imagine this. If I were to ask you, is leaven good or bad? Now, it depends on your understanding of Scripture, because your immediate answer could be, oh, it's very, very bad. Well, where do we get that? Well, I, sorry, I have the Greek word for leaven here just to help us out. Leaven, uh, otherwise known as yeast, that which is small and yet thoroughly pervades another thing and changes it. That which changes everything that receives it. So if you receive this leaven, you will be changed by it. So this is a change agent. This takes whatever it receives, whatever receives it, and alters it. Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, watch out for leaven, guys. But not just any leaven, the leaven of these guys. These guys, when you receive that which is small that is coming from them, their ideology, their philosophy, their theology, when you absorb that, it will alter you. And you know what? These are the guys that crucified Jesus. So as a result, when you take in this leaven, it will change you. I know it seems small. Their ideas might not seem so flabbergasting. However, if you take in that which is small, that subtlety, it will alter you, and you too will stand against the very Messiah that you are supposedly waiting for. Now look at this. Another parable he spoke to them. Speaking of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Well, if leaven is bad, well, then this is a strange one. How could the kingdom of heaven be likened unto it? Same Greek word, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. Now, the story right before this, the, the other parable, is talking about the mustard seed. You know, the one that's the smallest seed, but it actually grows up to be a huge one. So this is literally, 
in conjunction with that saying something small is being added. The kingdom of heaven is like this. When you receive it, it will come in, and though it at first seems small, it will change everything. So this idea of leaven is a change agent, and the kingdom of heaven is like it. The kingdom of heaven brings change, but so do, does the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They bring change as well. Leaven. There is something very good and something very bad that wants to change your life. So I'm going to use the illustration of fat or fit, and I'm not making a statement towards anyone here or in my audience. I know some people are very sensitized to the issues of weight. I'm included. I've been considered skinny my entire life, so I've always wanted to fatten up. So this is, this is an awkward one for all of us. However, no better illustration of something that starts out small and grows big than the human body, huh? So fat or fit, two illustrations of change, one good and one bad. So let's go with illustration number one. This is my change example number one, the making of the fat guy. Enjoy. I'm going to read you a story. Once upon a time, there was a man. Aren't you glad that I chose a man instead of a woman here? So this is very strategic on my part. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a man. This man was in amazing physical condition. When he flexed, his muscles bulged. When he ran, he ran and ran without tiring. When he ate, he ate foods that nurtured his health and built his body stronger. This man was an athlete. But one day, this man changed. He decided that he didn't want the disciplines and rigors of exercise anymore. He started eating sugar and chemical-laden junk food. He sat around on the couch all day and watched television. And he refused to lift any more weights or accept the challenge of strenuous exercise. Sadly, but not surprisingly, this man became fat. Very fat. In fact, so fat that a story was written about him to illustrate the dangers of change. This story. The end. Isn't that powerful? I'm going to give you another change example, number two, the making of the athlete. Once upon a time, there was a man. This man was fat. When he flexed, well, his muscles sagged, or um, maybe it would be better said that his muscles jiggled. When he ran, well, he couldn't run. He could only sit. Remember, he was extremely fat. When he ate, he ate foods that added more fat and jiggled to his already fat and jiggly body. This man was a fat guy, but one day this man changed. He decided that he didn't want to live in a fat man's body anymore. He wanted to live differently. He started eating foods that built his body stronger and foods that helped shoo away the fat cells. He started moving, standing up, walking around, running around, sweating, resisting, exerting his inner man. His fat man's suit began to melt away and a new sort of guy came forth. Amazingly, but not surprisingly, this man became trim and fit. Very fit. In fact, so fit that a story was written about him to illustrate the blessings of change. This story. The end. I know, powerful stories. You'll notice that in one, you start with one that we're like, oh, fat guy. Or no, it was athletic guy, strong guy. Yay. But that man can change. And so can the fat guy. In both situations, we have sort of the, sort of the hero guy and the bad guy. And yet in each of our lives and each day, we make a choice of which direction we go. You see, change is a part of life, but we need to know how to appropriate it. Beware the fat yeast. There is yeast that will grow you up and expand you, but not in the right way. We'll call, we'll call it the fat yeast. Do you want to increase? Here's what the fat yeast will tell you. This is its doctrine. 
Well, then take a break. Take it easy. Stop working so hard. Think about you. If it causes sweat, it must be bad. If it's difficult, then it's despicable. You are special. You are worth it. You are deserving. You are lovely in a fat suit. So eat what you want, sleep when you want, and do whatever you want. That is a surefire way to grow large in this earth. Yep, it's true. However, it's fat yeast. It is an idea and a thought that when it comes into your life will change you. And so as a result, you need to be watchful how you receive these things. Need in the fit yeast. So the idea in scripture is you stick in this yeast into a lump of dough and you knead it in and then it actually expands. So instead of kneading in that other stuff, the, the stuff that the Pharisees and the Sadducees want, you know, the stuff that's going to turn you towards you instead of towards Christ, let's knead in the fit yeast. Do you want to increase? Yes, I do. Well, for that to happen, Eric, you need to decrease. You need to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. God wants to increase you and grow you big and strong, but for that to happen, you need to first realize that God desires this lump, known as Eric Ludi, called you, which you can put your name in there too. In fact, he purchased you. He wants to invade your lump, own it, and operate it. And only then can he cause it to grow up strong, powerful, and full of life. So receive him, be changed by him, and fervently respond to all his love-infused commands. That is a surefire way to grow large in the kingdom of heaven. Choosing to change God's style. So I'm going to give you a few R's here to ponder. There's, there's a lot of change elements in Scripture. And you're going to notice that the essence of the Christian life is change. Repent. The very essence of repent is change. It's the very idea of it. So Jesus comes, and when he started his ministry, what does he start hollering? Change. That's what he starts with. Change. Change your direction. Change your thinking. Change your leaven. You're receiving the wrong ideas. You need to reject those ideas and hear these ideas. It's called the good news of Jesus Christ. Receive. You need to change your Savior. Switch out your object of trust. We know it as belief, but it starts with an R. It works out really well. In other words, it's sort of like us. If we have that glass full of polluted water, what do we need to do? I mean, that's us. We're the glass, but we're full of junk. We need to change by repenting and emptying and then receiving that which he gives. And so we need to change that which we trust in. Respond. Change your priorities. Change your motive. Change your purpose. When you become a Christian, the Spirit of God begins to work on you. And he begins to invite you into a form of living that is not comfortable. And we need to learn to respond to that. And that respond literally means we need to change we need to change our priorities. I've been putting emphasis on me and what I like, what I want, what I desire. Instead, I need to put priorities on what he wants, what he desires, what he is after in my life. Change our motive. It's no longer about me and what makes me look good. Now it's about him and what makes him look good. Change our purpose. It's no longer to be fat and happy in this life and to have pleasure. Now it's to reveal his glory. You see, all of this is change that is taking place inside of us. Resist. Change your footing. Change your position. Change your attitude. Up to this point, the devil comes into your life, beats you up. And now God says, hey, let's change that. Stand against it. Resist. Renounce. Change your relationship with your previous slave master. You've been allowing the devil to control you. Cut that off. Renounce it change your slave master. I no longer serve you. I no longer serve sin. I serve Jesus Christ. I serve his righteousness. Run. 
Change your power source. Change your level of exertion. You've been walking. In fact, some of you have just been sitting. Now start running the race that you've been called to. It's an alteration of every aspect of your life. Is God a fan of change? He is. The doctrine of change. Introducing the two key elements of change. Brace yourselves. Number one, God does not change. That doesn't that sound like a contradiction. I just said, is God a big fan of change? And I said, absolutely. And then the next line I say is, God does not change. Hmm. Number two, but God seeks to change us. What's he changing us into? Into his likeness. He's not the one that needs to change. We're the ones that need to change. And as a result, though he doesn't change, he needs to change us to be like him. So number one, God does not change. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent or change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? In our God is no shadow of turning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His very proper name, I am, Jehovah is how many of us know it, Yahweh, means the one that is always the same and unchanging. So, by very definition of who God is, he is. He always will be. When you get to know the God of the Bible, you can know that the same God exists today in the same way. He is not altered. He is not shifted. There is no shadow of turning in him. So God is always the same. Number two, but God seeks to change us. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being changed. It says it right there. Which oftentimes is translated as transformed. The form of us is altering. Into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We must not remain the same. So in other words, God is always the same, but healthy Christianity must not remain the same, but alter and transform and be changed, but not in just any direction. We're supposed to change in the direction of becoming more and more like him. The Holy Spirit seeks to change us. So the word in the Greek, uh, which is where we get our word today, metamorphosis, uh, you know, the old caterpillar uh, transforming into the butterfly, that's actually where it comes from, metamorpho, to change into another form, the form of Jesus Christ, to be specific for us as Christians, to transform, to transfigure, to be altered into the divine temperament, the heavenly disposition, and the perfect glory of his nature and bearing, to be made like Jesus Christ in actuality. This is what the Holy Spirit does inside of us. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are potter. And all we are the work of your hands. We are clay. He's the potter, and we're clay. What does a potter do with clay? But he transforms it. He conforms it to what he desires it to be. Clay is changeable. A potter... It's a very different thing. So I'm going to go off on a rabbit trail, and you know, there's part of me that doesn't really want to go off on this rabbit trail, but I don't want anything to sort of be a needle uh, in your mind in this. There's a few in here that I could just imagine. Rabbit trail. Doesn't the Bible say that God changed his mind? So here's, we know that God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't repent of what he does. He is. So his opinion is what it is. He set out to do his work. 
He is going to save the world. He's going to send forth a son who will be the seed of a woman that will crush the head of the serpent. But doesn't it say in the Bible that he changes his mind? Illustration number one, Moses and the people. The Lord changed his mind. What? 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 About the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Illustration number two, God changed towards the Ninevites. Then God saw their works, that they turned from the evil, their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Doesn't it say that when God says he's going to do something, he does it? So what, what is this? So you're like, I was fine in this message until you brought that up, Eric. I wasn't needing to have this question answered. Let's get something straight. I'm going to say this very gently. God doesn't change in any of these stories but rather proves his changeless nature in and through them. I know that's quite a statement, isn't it? In other words, these stories are the very evidence of the fact that he doesn't change. You see, God is revealed in and through the scriptures doing very specific things, making very specific promises, and he keeps all of them. The way God is yesterday is the same way he is today. It's the same way he always will be. And these stories, ironically, that can bring confusion on this point are the very stories that back that. So I'm going to give you some it is written. Last week's message was it is written. What does God say? God, and God says this throughout the entire scriptures. I'm just going to give you a few illustrations. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? This is the nature of God reveals. Very simply put, and I've covered it quite a few times in the last weeks, mercy triumphs over judgment. That is the nature of our God. Judgment does not prevail. Mercy will always prevail in the unchanging nature of God. That is a fact of who he is. Who is is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Fact. This is the unchanging nature of God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You see, this is what the scriptures state of our God. This is who he is. What do we see in these stories? We see exactly that. We see God maintaining exactly who he is. If my people who are called my by name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, what will he do? You know the answer to that. And so did the people of Israel. This wasn't a question to them. God was not changing. God was fulfilling that which he promised. If you turn, then you'll get mercy. And that's exactly what we see in Scripture. Though it may appear that God is changing his mind, he's changing his judgment. His judgment is set upon all of us, and we are destined for hell according to our current condition. But if we humble ourselves, pray and seek his face, his judgment changes into mercy. And he is able to change towards us in his relationship. That is the facts of Scripture. God remains the exact same towards sin in each of these stories. His attitude towards sin does not alter. He still has the same mind towards sin. God promises to judge unrepentant sin. Does he? Will he? He will judge unrepentant sin. Unrepentant sin. But God also promises that if a people humble themselves and repent, then he will relent his judgment and supply mercy. When does God relent? When there is humility and repentance. When they turn, he relents. That is a fact. 
God is God, and therefore he has not taken off guard in any of these circumstances. It's as if he has no idea what is happening. And he's shocked. It's like, whoa, they actually repented? That's not what's taking place. God is proving his nature in and through these circumstances. God is God, and therefore he is not surprised by their repentance as if he did not know it were coming, but rather in and through repentance is able to show that he is a God that will indeed remove the sentence of judgment that rightfully hangs over a people capital I, capital F, if they humble themselves and call upon the name of the Lord. God is God, and therefore he is using each of these circumstances to reveal his unchanging nature. God is God, and therefore he is using each of these circumstances to foreshadow his mercy as expressed in Christ Jesus soon to come. God shows his unchanging attribute that mercy triumphs over judgment. This is what he reveals. The entire Bible reveals one key thing, Jesus. So every story shows Jesus. What are these stories showing? They're showing a just penalty for sin and that God can change his relationship towards us if we humble ourselves. What changes God's relationship to us? Us repenting and believing. It's called the law of believe and live. You have the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. But there's a higher law. If you believe in me, you will live you will receive my mercy. This is the unchanging declaration of God Almighty throughout the entire Bible. Listen to Jonah's reasoning. So let's go back to Nineveh. Nineveh is under judgment, and in three days, God will destroy them. God said it. He will do it. Listen to what Jonah says. Now remember, Jonah, a prophet of Israel, knows God's nature, and what does he say? Ah, oh, Lord... Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. No shocker here. Jonah wasn't surprised in God's nature. He knew God's nature, which is why he didn't want to preach to the Ninevites. He wanted judgment on them. But he knew that God was one who would change his orientation towards the people of Nineveh if they repented. Oh, he didn't want them to. Jonah was the most successful preacher in the history of the world, probably, and he was a reticent one. <clears throat> okay, the rabbit trail is done. We're back to talking about change. A quick reminder. God does not change, but God seeks to change us. How can you tell bad change from good change? Bad change, words for it typically, backsliding is a form of bad change in the Bible. Sinning, rebelling, disobeying, strain, you know, like the sheep that wanders off, they're changing from where they're supposed to be. Leaving, miscarriage, abortion, there's various things that are a strain or a changing that actually bring death and they harm those, either you or others. Good change. When something is improved, when something is refined, when something is pruned, cleansed, and washed, means it goes from being dirty to clean. Progression, maturity. These are a part of God's language in the New Testament, throughout the Bible. Remember the prodigal. The prodigal has a position in a house of his father, and he chooses to change that position. He wants his inheritance, and he changes. And it wasn't a good change. And yet, the father 
longs to see another change, a repentance to where he would come back. The entire while, I'll just go through it. Bad change. He leaves, he sins, he digresses. Good change. He remembers, he repents, and he returns. You see, the same character that when you do wrong, there is still the opportunity to change in the right direction. An amazing principle. Now, here's just a thought to think of. In this story, the entire while, God remains unchanged. The Father never alters in his position. And that's an amazing testimony in each of these stories to recognize that change is a part of life. We all need to change. But to know that our secret of strength is recognizing that our God is still at home looking out that window longing for us to remember, to repent, and to return. Examining the life of Eric Ludi in light of change. So we're going to ask Eric Ludi some questions. Eric, what is your purpose here on earth? My answer, to bring glory to Jesus Christ. You see, now that has been formed over decades. That little simple statement, I know why I'm here. I know what I'm here to be doing. I used to be about me. And even as I first became a Christian, if you'd asked me what my purpose is, it would have been confusing. It's like, well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I have one life to live, and I want to share Jesus with people, but I also want to get the most out of this life from me as I can. I wouldn't have said the latter part of it because that would have sounded unspiritual if I was in church. However, that was still a very real part of who I was. In other words, I wanted to please Jesus, but hey, I got got one go at this thing. I don't want to blow it. I mean, there's a lot of things to explore and to know and to do. God, could I have you and have a bit of my own agenda here? And I'm going to tell you today that my answer is to bring glory to Jesus Christ. Now, that has changed over the years, but that's been locked in for a long time now. And if that starts changing, you need to be a little concerned about Eric Ludi. Does that make sense? So there's just things in my life that shouldn't change. So Eric, has this changed? Well, it has changed in the beginning, but when I locked into this, I've been locked into this for a long time now. Is this vulnerable to change? Well, if it is, then we all have issues. In other words, that's the key in my life. I need to recognize that as I begin to conform to the image of Christ and I begin to lock into what he desires for me, that then I become like him in the fact that I don't change in certain areas. And there needs to be a confidence in those that are a part of this ministry that they know I'm not just malleable and ready to change at any moment when it comes to the core essence of my life. Eric, what is God desiring to do in your life? My answer, to conform me into his image, to reveal his nature in and through my life. I know what he's doing. I, I know it very clearly. Eric, has this changed? Is this vulnerable to change? It shouldn't be. In other words, this is like rock within me. I know why I'm here. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I know what God is doing inside of me. Eric, what are your God-given priorities in life right now? My answer, worshiping God, loving my wife, and investing into my kiddos. Now, you could say, don't you do more than that? Yeah, I do a lot more than that, but this is a kernel, and this shouldn't change. In other words, no matter what happens in my life, no matter what season I enter into my life, this is a constant. Eric, has this changed? Is this vulnerable to change? It shouldn't be. Eric, what is your specific God assignment in regards to serving the body of Christ? My answer, to strengthen that which remains in the church before it dies. Now, I know that sounds like a pretty confusing statement. That comes from the letter to the church at Smyrna uh, in the book of Revelation. That's actually the very same thing that uh, Brother Andrew would say was his key life verse when he was going into the uh, behind the Iron Curtain to share the gospel. And that's exactly what Leslie and I would both say. If you asked us, what are we here to do? What have we been equipped to do? 
And you're gonna notice I didn't say, start Ellerslie, start a church. I know what I'm here for. It is to strengthen that which remains in the church before it dies. What if Ellerslie shuts down? What if the church gets blown up by a bomb? It makes no difference in my calling. I know why I'm here. And as long as I'm here in this earth, that should not change. I know God has given me assignment and I want to walk it out to inspire the church of Jesus Christ to regain the rack of glory and to remember the epic majesty of our God. You'll notice that this is what moves me. This is part of who I am. And yet the way that it's expressed might change. But there's a core of who I am. So as I'm going through this, what I want to trigger inside of you is to recognize that there's certain things that God wants to bake in, that he wants to put in at a center point in your life that actually don't change. And yet at the same time, you might need to change to even get that at the bedrock of your life. Eric has this change. This is vulnerable to change. Eric, what are the tools God has uniquely given you to accomplish these ends? You would answer these questions possibly different. Now, there's some at the beginning that I would say, you know, I really would encourage you to have very similar answers. They don't need to be the exact same statement, but they need to be pretty close to show health. But what are the tools God has uniquely given to you? Uniquely to me. What is that? My answer, an understanding of discipleship. I understand discipleship. I do. A passion for communication. I care about speaking it, communicating. I don't even care what method. It could be in here, preaching. It could be through a movie. It could be through a book. I am passionate about communicating the truth of the gospel and a love for seeing people made whole. You know, people are not always that lovely. And yet, for whatever reason, there is a love for people that God has wired into my being, and I love to see people come through and to see light and to be made whole, to be healed. I love it. I'm built for it. It's like it's hot-wired into me. I know it. And since I know that, these are things that actually have been ratified throughout the years. Eric has this change. This is vulnerable to change. I know what God has given me. Though I can lay it down and say, God... You can have this and you can do with me anything you want. I remember a time period when Leslie and I were actually thinking we were going to move to Nicaragua. And it sounds really strange, maybe to some of you to even hear that. Uh, they don't speak English in Nicaragua. And I speak English. I don't really speak Spanish that well. It's not that I can't, but it wouldn't be intelligible Spanish. I know words in Spanish, but try and put sentences together and it gets really awkward for Eric Ludi. And so you know what a dying process that was? I know what I'm built for, but I'm built to speak English. And I speak English well. Well, I don't speak that language well. So it was a dying process. I said, God, if you want that, here you go. Here's my life. If you want me to serve in Nicaragua and have to learn a different language, you can have it. I literally thought we were going to Nicaragua. If you'd asked me at the time, I would have said, yep, that's where we're headed. And yet, God was, in a sense, testing me to sort of see if these things I would hold on to them above him. And yet, God has given me certain things. And there's certain things in me that haven't changed over all the years. The reality of change in my life. There are things in my life that should never change. There's certain things in your life that should never change. Once they get locked in, you build upon them. They are fast and held strong. Listen to the second one. There are things in my life that must change or I will wither up and die. Isn't that a strange statement? There are certain things that should never change. There are certain things that must change. 
My life is constantly changing, though I just gave you a whole list of things that hasn't changed for decades. But there's another part of my life that is constantly being refined and changed. Whether it's attitude, whether it's motive, whether it's the manner of how I discipline my life, God is always convicting me, testing me, proving me. Number three, there are things in my life that will change. You see, never, must, will. I live in a, on a planet that is full of all sorts of variables. And there are plans that I would make that actually may not happen, and I need to know how to handle that. There are things in my life that will change and will prove my character and will prove my trust in an unchanging God when they do. I don't know where you're mainly seeing emphasis of God in your life right now, but all three of those work together to build a Christian. The illustration of ministry. So I'm going to take that very concept of three things and we're going to weave it into ministry. There are things in my life that should never change. I awaken every day with a singular eye to seek out people on this earth and to share with them the love, truth, and grace of Jesus Christ. So if you were to follow my life for the past two decades, you'll notice some weird similarities between Eric two decades ago and Eric today. There are certain things that have never changed in my life. I awaken and I say, God, I want to go after souls. I want to go after your glory. This is deeply embedded in who I am. There's things that shouldn't change. It's good that that doesn't change in my life. There are things in my life that must change or I will wither up and die. I must heed the Holy Spirit's conviction and give up my selfish ways, cease my sinful propensities, and close off the door to darkness. Long and short, I must be sanctified. It is surprising how much I've been sanctified in the last 20 years, and it's surprising how much more sanctification is needed. You'd think that 20 years would get it all out. I mean, I would have actually, when I first started Christianity, I thought maybe a week or two would get it all out. And yet what I found is that there was a need for a constant change in my life. Not at the global level of purpose and belief and orientation of why I'm here on earth, but a change in how I go about living, thinking, acting, speaking, dressing, handling my finances, handling my relationships. Everything needs constant change and improvement. Number three, there are things in my life that will change and will prove my character and will prove my trust in an unchanging God when they do change. Things will not go as planned. You ever had that happen? Resistance will come. Hindrances will rise up. Persecution will emerge. Money that was there will suddenly not be there. Do I hear an amen? And where I thought I was headed will not prove to be where I am headed. What? But it is these precise challenges that prove me to be fixed to my unchanging God. So the fact that there are unique obstacles in my life are what prove to bring me back to the fact that but God is unchanging. Sanctification. It's a big word, but it's what the Holy Spirit does when he moves into our life. And it's not something that is done immediately. I, believe it or not, I have people out there that think I believe in instant uh, you know, perfectionism and that I believe that when someone comes to Jesus, they're made perfect. Here's what I'll tell you very simply. There is one that is perfect, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he is my Savior. And when I believe in him, I'm clothed in his perfection. So, before the Father, 
I am invited into his holy presence and deemed perfect in light of Christ's perfection. However, inside of those clothes is a very imperfect Eric that is being changed from glory to glory by the very Spirit of God. I'm a work in process. I am being changed. However, the one I find my trust and my confidence in for salvation is perfect. So the process of embracing the constant change of the Spirit. The transforming, changing power of grace at work within those who love God. The Spirit of God is making making us likened unto Jesus. And since we are not like Jesus, he must change us. Metamorpho. He must take us and alter us. He must change us. He must conform us. He must transform us. The story of change in my life. So this is going to be a little inside picture. And the reason I'm giving this, like I said, I've dedicated it to my staff. We as a staff are agonizing through certain things right now, and that is change. And so as a fresh reminder just for what change is like, and the fact that is change good or bad? Because we at Ellerslie have been forced, if you will, by circumstances to constantly adapt, to constantly change. What we are doing here is extremely challenging. And the culture in which we are engaged is always changing. Wow, is it changing. This is constant change around us. This affects us as Christians in how we deliver the message, how we live our lives, how we make decisions. If you think that you just do the same thing for 40 straight years and you never have to alter the way you do what you do to bring Jesus Christ to this age and generation, you don't understand what it means to be an evangelist. This is hard stuff, but we don't compromise the truth. We don't change the message. We change our means of delivery. In other words, we have to change to bring about change in this world. For instance, you know that you go back 40 years and you didn't even have an internet. You go back 40 years, you don't have social media, which, by the way, there's part of me that just wishes we could go back 40 years because this type of stuff has made the issues of our day for sharing the gospel in our country extremely complex. And I'm, like, I've actually still to this day, I don't think, yeah, I I think I can say this with integrity, have never posted on Facebook. I personally have never. Now, people have posted in my name, right? It's like Eric said this. However, I've never gone on there. I don't even know how to do it and gone punk and submit. You know, I, I've never done it. I've never tweeted, and yet I had an uncle that said, yeah, I follow your tweet. I'm like, I have a tweet? Uh, in other words, I, how do we negotiate these things? I'm like an old school guy that doesn't like modern stuff. I like dusty books that smell dusty. I feel like they're more spiritual. <laughs> and yet, how do we negotiate the turns of communicating with this generation that is moving. Just one of the the facts that we've dealt with as as a school. The increase of interest, most people around the world have access to internet now. And when they think of education, their first thought is not going somewhere to a campus now. It is actually to be trained in their own life via online training. So even this one year, I think the online uh, training industry is like $2 billion and it's expected to double this year. It's like doubling an industry. This is a massive movement for people away from on-campus locations to uh, being trained online. 
So we can just ignore it. Oh, you know, that, that's one option. At the same time, as it says to the sons of Issachar in the Old Testament, they understood the times in which they live. Do we understand or do we need to understand the times in which we live? Those are part of the challenges that I've always faced because I'm not a guy that actually wants to change. And yet if you were to hang around me in how I lead in ministry, I am always ready to change. We'll change it if it makes it better. Does it make it better? Is it more effective? We'll change it. So we're going to go back quite a few years to a burden to impart the true undiluted gospel that Paul preached to the world to disciple eager Christians in the life of utter givenness to Jesus Christ. So we're talking about a young Eric here, and I'm going to give you, I actually have a little quote from my original writing for uh, this vision called Ellerslie. It was called Men of Honor back then. I wasn't thinking about girls. I was only thinking about guys. And this is what I wrote. I have a vision for the generations after me. They need to know the cross of Christ, the saving grace of our precious Jesus, the undiluted gospel that Paul preached, and the standard of holy living. To this end I will labor, that the gospel of Christ may not be diluted, that the cross of Christ may retain its offense, and that those that God wills for me to disciple may carry this employment unto future generations. So it was summer 1993. You're going to notice a lot of similarities about that and what we do here. And yet that was 24 years ago. The vision, a training program in which 12 young men would come and be discipled. That was the vision. And it was an ache inside of me. The strange detour. We're getting invites to speak on relationships all over the world. I get married to this young girl named Leslie. The world is just like stunned. I mean, this was not an, I'm not overstating it either. The world was stunned by my relationship with Leslie. They had never heard of anything like it. They, some people were mocking it. Other people were like, I need to know more. But there was no pattern for what they had seen, and so they wanted us to speak. So we didn't want to speak on this topic. That wasn't what I was planning on doing. And so we wrote it down in a book, and the next person that was going to ask us to share our story, I was going to stick that in their nose and say, just read, okay? I'm tired of talking about this. That book then goes to a publisher, and a publisher calls us up and says, this needs to go around the world. Could I publish this book? I'm like, what is everyone's fetish with our love story? And that creates a detour. I know what I'm here for. I'm here to disciple. Just give me 12 young men. I'm not wanting to travel and speak on relationships. Decades later, we've written over 12 books on relationships. That's what most people still know me for. People that even visit the church probably expect me to get up and talk about relationships with the opposite sex. And that was hard for me. I remember uh, Corey Tenboom saying it this way. She said, I used to get so upset with God or with people when they'd ask me to speak about my, my stay in Ravensbrook. They wanted to hear about my sufferings in a concentration camp. And, and what, what she would say, I have so much more I'd love to share. But I finally accepted the fact that this was the unique message God gave me for this generation of Christians. They needed to hear it. So I finally just said, thank you, Lord, for giving me this testimony. And it's funny, if we had... Corey, come here. I mean, she's passed on. But if she came here, what would we all want her to talk about, even if we've read the books? Could you, could you share that one thing? It's hard. When people want one message out of you, it's really hard, especially when my burden did not start with teaching on relationships with the opposite sex. Come on. That's not the big fish to fry here, guys. We got something bigger. Well, Eric, could you come in and speak on this? Ah! Okay, God. All right. I accept this. The complaints, oh, we got them. 
boy, if I were to, some of you have probably heard, but when we first started speaking, whew, we had a lot of complaints. This is not the message we are used to hearing. Well, that's good. Thank you for the compliment. This is a change from the way modern youth are used to hearing the truth. By the way, these came out as complaints, not as compliments. This is like, hey, whoa, you can't do this. You can't just start giving a whole new model for, for these things. That's going to confuse everyone. The ache. So the whole while I'm going through this, there's still an ache. The church needs more than a call to repentance. They need to be practically discipled in how to produce the fruit of repentance. I'm traveling all over the world, speaking to tens of thousands at a time, and I would see repentance. But I didn't see any follow-up to that. And I would just leave town. And it was an ache, because guess what? There was a burden that I had from way back in the day. The countless iterations. Iterations mean slight changes. How can we share this better? We started with a message. Uh, it was our first year of marriage. Uh, and it was, I think we had seven principles of an amazing love story. Then over time, if you read When God Writes Your Love Story, which was our, actually our third book, we actually have four. So we changed it from seven to four. Was there something wrong with the other three? No. But we felt we could consolidate those seven into four and make it more clear. Should we change that or should we? I mean, seven was fine. People were giving their life to Jesus. Constant change, constant adaptation of the message. How can we bring them to understanding? How can we win this audience for Christ? Should we take love offerings? I mean, these guys, I know this guy I really respect, he takes up love offerings. Uh, should we do ticket sales? We had free events and they would be partly full. Listen to this. We started doing ticket sales and charging everyone to come and we packed the place. So what should we do? It sounds so much more spiritual to make it free. But when we make it free, no one has a buy-in. When we put a price to it, now suddenly it's packed. Well, that was odd. How should we do this, God? Show us what is integrity. What marks your character? What would you do is so hard. So small towns, medium towns, or big towns. That might sound like, just go big towns. You have to realize when you go to a big town, they have concerts and events constantly. You go to small towns, usually you can't make it. I mean, it's really hard financially to make it. Medium towns, medium towns. Small to medium became like Leslie's and my uh, favorite things. And we were invited all over the, the world. But small to medium towns, one of my favorite events was in Montana, in some obscure place. I, don't even, I can't even remember what it is. Uh, it starts with an L, I think. Livingston, Livingston, Montana. It was in a gymnasium, no, like a auditorium in a, uh, in, in a school, and this town had never had, like for a year or two, had not had one other event come to town. We were like the first one to come to that town. It's like, they actually are coming here. People from all over, it was packed out into the hallways, and the enthusiasm for the message was so extreme. I was like, now that, that's what I want, right there. I want people, when they hear it, to want to hear it. So you'll notice in almost everything I do, that one lesson, you're going to see it. I want people to come to Ellerslie. You prove that you want to be here. If your mom wants you to be here and you don't want to be here, we don't want you here. Not because we don't love you, but this is an environment where we want eagerness. We want you to prove to us that you want it. It's the same way I was learning that when we were going out and speak. One hour. Should we speak for one hour? Well, I mean, if you ask the modern uh, youth pastor, you say, you can't speak for more than 10 minutes. You'll lose them. So when, I, when we're saying one hour, that's audacious. Two hours, three hours, we had three and a half hour conferences. And the youth pastor said, that, that won't work on my kids. 
to just give us a shot. They had never heard truth before. We would come in and speak truth, and they were electrified. The front, I mean, they would be there for another hour and a half on their face at the end. We're talking like a five-hour event. The world had hadn't seen this before. Young people actually encountering something that had no fluff to it. They were just getting the straight gospel. And it affected them in the area of their life that they most felt, and that was their sexuality. Weekend conferences, how do we do this, God? We change constantly. Every event, we would do something different. God, how can we do this better? How can we be more effective? The complaints. You are calling these young people to completely change their lives. That is too extreme of a call. Every time we have ever done anything, we receive complaints. So you have to realize I'm somewhat calloused to complaints. Complaints aren't actually the language that meets Eric. In other words, the scriptures do. You appeal to me on that front, and I'm very malleable. But just the fact that it's uncomfortable or it's difficult, it's never been done, those things don't work on me. The ache, no matter how many people we spoke to, no matter how many people responded with tears of repentance, they were returning to churches that knew nothing about discipleship. And therefore, those seeds that we are planting were falling on rocky, weedy soil. The church needed to return to discipleship. But how, oh God, please build that training program and build it through me. Oh, the ache to say, God, why have you given me this burden? I don't, I'm willing to give up all of this. There's such a burden inside of me. I'm showing you something because I, this is how God has worked in this ministry. He's worked through a focused vision and an ache. And as a result, there's so many different changes that have taken place, so many different challenges along the way, but the same vision. The big step, we leave our international podium, we come off the road, we change our approach, we want to begin discipling. This is, at that point, by far the biggest decision we'd ever made. Our publishing careers basically came to a halt because the way that, and we were so successful in selling books when we were traveling, but if we're not traveling, how is the word of our books going to get out there? Because we were the main mechanism of marketing. And that's where we got all our money from. I mean, that's how we supported our ministry was by traveling and speaking. The complaints. How can you change? First of all, people were all mad that we did it in the first place. So shut up. Will you get out of here? You're saying things we don't want to hear. Then when we decide to change, everyone's like all mad that we're changing. If you don't speak on this, then the truth will be lost. I tell you, the pressure that was mounting against us because the church literally, in a global sense, was crying out saying, Eric and Leslie, I know maybe you've heard this from someone else, but I, we just cannot imagine. In our own community, you're the only voice we know on this. If you don't speak, no one will. Oh, how am I supposed to respond to that? You are the only ones who can reach this generation on this topic. First of all, don't buy it for a second if that's you. In other words, God is perfectly capable to raise up voices out of rocks. My job is to obey, to heed him, to follow him wherever he leads. The countless iterations. Oh boy, now we're trying to disciple. The many lessons of growth. How do you take an individual life and train it in the power of gospel living? I know how to speak to a group. I don't know how to speak to an individual now. I've spent so much time speaking to large groups and learning how to do that and to move them now. How do I deal with an individual life? How do you teach a hungry student precept upon precept and build within them an understanding of the life of grace? Change, 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 change. Constant change. Individual settings, group settings. How big of a group is too big? We went through this. We used to have what's called authentic girl weekends. We'd have girls come out 
And uh, we, we were like, what's the right size? Eight? Well, Jesus cho- chose 12. 12? Is that too small? 18. We have so many girls that want in. We have this massive waiting list. Can we go to 24? So we go to 24 and go, no, I think it was 18. Then we go down to 12. We were always trying to find the sweet spot. What is the most effective way to communicate? How big of a group is too small? Fix this, fix that. Host it in our living room. Host it in a church. Host it in a neutral location. When you're in a living room, people don't take it seriously. When you're in a church, some people just feel so uncomfortable because of the hurt that they've had in the church. All right, we'll do it in a hotel conference room. Is that fine? And then some people are like, that's so stale and stiff in here. In other words, God, I want to remove every blockade to reach that soul. And we all know it's not what room you have. It's not how many are at the meeting. It's the Holy Spirit that wins a soul. However, you're going to notice in my entire life, it's saying if there is something that is an obstacle for someone to know the truth and to hear the gospel, and I have some power to remove that obstacle, hey, I'm going to do it. God, how do we do this so that it really works? The ache. So no matter how much I did this, there's still an ache. These students need to know how significant this is. They need to see its importance. See, I had a small group of 10 to 12. I don't remember what the number was. That were meeting in our home. And most of the messages that you have heard, if you go through Ellerslie, a lot of those messages were formed. It took me about 60 to 80 hours for each of the messages. So much time was put into each one. And then I would teach to 10 to 12. However, here was my problem. They didn't treat it as if it was the most important thing in the world. Why? Because there's just like 10 to 12 of us. This can't be that important. And I recognize that. When I'm speaking to tens of thousands, guess what? Everyone feels it's important. Now I go down to 10 to 12, thinking I'm going to do this small and put value on the individual. However, the individual was struggling with being able to appreciate it because it's like, well, you know, If there's only 10 to 12 people here, it can't be that valuable. Oh, so now there's an ache. These guys have to see how important this is. The big step, step, we go after the Bible College campus in Windsor, Colorado on Southwood Lane. You ever been there? The complaints. Uh, Eric, that's impossible. There's no way that you can afford that. That plan is untenable. Eric, financially, that's like, you can't do that. Whatever it takes to bring dignity to the truth in this generation, to actually formally begin to establish a voice on this topic where people can come and see the value in it and see the importance of this work. I'm willing to step out and do it because I have a small hand, small hand, I have God's hand in the small of my back that is pushing me. Let's do this thing. The countless iterations, let me take you on a journey that our staff has gone on. How do you choose the staff for this? You know how hard of a decision that was? You see, I know how to speak to thousands. Now I know how to disciple one-on-one. I know how to build curriculum. How do you staff this thing? What sort of people would be needed? What sort of staff fits this work? How many staff do we need? How long should the training be? How How much should the training cost? How many times a year should the training be offered? In what order should the truth be presented? There's so much truth, but what order should it be presented? The complaints. That's too expensive. That's too short of a training period. That's too long. I can't come. It doesn't matter what I do, there's going to be a complaint. One thing you'll learn about Eric Ludi is that I recognize that up front. If I'm a people pleaser, 
then I'm going to live completely different than the way I do. The reason we have moved forward in the directions we move is because there is a burden that underlines it all. And that burden still remains the same for 24 years. And that has not changed, though the way in which that burden is expressed does. The countless iterations. Add two more semesters. You know, we started Ellerslie with one semester. There's going to be one summer semester. Leslie and I were actually planning on traveling the world and, and working with orphans. That was actually the original model. One semester, and then we were going to travel. Well, there was so much interest in the first semester that we added a, third, added a second. And then that filled up, and the demand was so great for what we were doing here. And I still remember I was the last person to vote on our staff for it. I did not want to add a third semester. It's like, that means the whole year we're doing this. And I raised my hand. I voted for it. Add two more semesters. Change the semester from 10 weeks to nine weeks. Actually, our first semester is supposed to be 10 weeks. And we accidentally, it's probably my fault, in the calendar actually made it 11 weeks. So technically we went from 11 to 10 to 9, just to add one more change in there. Add a year-long advanced training. Change the advanced training to seven weeks. Add a two-year practicum program. Nix that. Add a one-year practicum program. Nix that. Shrink the practicum program down to 12 weeks. Combine the basic training and the advanced training all into one 12-week training and offer them all simultaneously three times a year. Hold it. I think there's even a better way to do this. Welcome to right now. <laughs> By the way, that's a summary because there's a lot more that goes into that. Some of you have witnessed this entire process. And I, I had a, a young guy come up, an Ellerslie graduate, come up to me. It was a couple weeks ago. I was out on a speaking trip. He came up and he says, so when are you going to change this new model? <laughs> I mean, it's good Ellerslie humor. I understand it. And I know what he means by that. And so my quip back was, well, when God leads us to. In other words, if it makes it better, we'll do that. My burden is still the same. How can I reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how can I do it better? Here's what I would say about this list. Every one of the changes we have made has improved the product. If you were to look at our 12-week training compared to our first 11-week training, and you were to just compare it straight across the board, I mean, I could have Sandy come up here and be a personal witness of the difference between our first semester and this semester that we're in right now. It's so much more profoundly powerful, clear, understandable, graspable. How did that happen? It takes time. It takes a constant sanctification, not just of our individual lives as leaders, but a sanctification, if you will, of the delivery vehicle. So I'm going to read you something that was written 24 years ago. And I want you to recognize that there's certain things in our life that God wants to lock in, that he wants us to build on. And there's other things that will change. And for us to learn to embrace that change as part of that which changes our character and molds us and sanctifies us. I have a vision for the generations after me. They need to know the cross of Christ, the saving grace of our precious Jesus, the undiluted gospel that Paul preached in the standard of holy living. To this end I will labor that the gospel of Christ may not be diluted, that the cross of Christ may retain its offense, and that those that God wills for me to disciple may carry this employment unto future generations. So let's review. There are things in our lives that should never change. There are things in our lives that must change or we will wither up and die. And there are things in our lives that will change and will prove our character and trust in an unchanging God when they do. I don't like ever making a change when I know it's going to affect other people. It's really hard. 
And here in a ministry, when we make a change, it has a ripple effect and it changes other people, which is a reason why I would almost say, I don't want to change. However, I have to trust that when I am obedient to God, that God will care for those that are in my ripple effect. That my obedience, when I know that God is leading, that as I follow it, even though my choices affect my marriage, my wife, they affect my children, they affect my church, they affect our ministry, they affect my staff, my, the pastoral leaders, it affects them, it really does. We have to have a confidence. Oswald Chambers talks about this. He says, when one person in a family chooses to give their life to Jesus, it's a ripple effect. It's like a stone dropped in water. And what happens? All those other family members have to deal with it. And it's actually really hard for them, especially if they are hard against Jesus Christ. It's really hard for them when one of their family members gives themselves to Jesus Christ. They don't know what to do. How am I supposed to relate to this person? It's a threat to them. It's convicting to them. They don't want it. And yet that's a gift from the Holy Spirit through your obedience, through your faith, to them. And that's the way I have to look at it too. In my life, there are going to be changes. There are going to be things, and I could guarantee you right now, that even if you were to study our newest model that we're laying out with Ellerslie, which I think is so exciting, thrilling, will it change? Sure. Of course. Why, why wouldn't it? I don't look at change as a threat, that form, to actually aid and help a clear communication of the gospel in our generation. And I would encourage you to embrace the same. Some of us just don't like change because it's uncomfortable. Is it uncomfortable? Oh, yeah. However, to grow and to growth of any kind demands difficulty. It does. If you train as an athlete, how do you get better? How do you grow stronger? Through difficulty. The same is true with any of us. We can stay where we're at and try and justify where we're at and say, I'm fine just the way I'm at. Or we could agree with the Holy Spirit and say, take me where you want to take me. And I know that won't be easy. But I refuse to not be fully utilized by the Spirit of God in my lifetime. Constant improvement. The Japanese call it kaizen. You guys ever heard that word? Kaizen, that's like their great secret to commercial... uh, uh, success in Japan is that they always improve their product and they're always seeking ways to make it better. Well, the Japanese didn't come up with that. That's the Holy Spirit. Constant improvement. We call it the change of the Holy Spirit. He's always increasing within us, always sharpening us, always refining us, always pruning us. There are things we know and things we don't know in every situation in life. And so say one of you is grieved with the loss of a loved one. Say you've gone through a situation where the classic question is, why God did this happen? There's certain things in every turn that you don't know, and there's certain things that you can know. What I want you to get a PhD in is not what you don't know, but in what you do know. God has given us his word, and he's revealed his nature and his character, and we can know it. And in every situation where there is unknowns that are around us, what do we build upon? that which we know. Don't stew about what you don't know. Don't listen to the devil saying, but this could happen. Oh, then this could happen. You don't know. So don't make that your focus. Make your focus that which you do know. I know why I'm here on earth. I know what Jesus is doing inside of me. I know what his end game is. And I know what my priorities are in each day. 
So there's a lot that I don't know. I have financial challenges. There's health issues. We have all sorts of things that swirl about, about us as Christians. There are things I don't know and I wouldn't have an answer for if you said, how are you going to pay that bill next January? I don't know. But let me tell you what I do know. My God is Jehovah Jireh. He's the I am that provides. He provided, he provides, and he always will provide. My God is Jehovah saves. That's actually what Jesus means. He saved, he saves, and he always will save. I rest securely in that knowledge that he is a God of miracles who delivers those who put their trust in him and those that put their confidence in him will not be put to shame. That I know and there is where I build my life. There's a lot I don't know and there's a lot you don't know, but there's stuff we should know. And from that knowing, we do not move. We are meant to be unchanging and immovable in a certain dimension of our life, though we are malleable, shapeable, in another dimension of our life. We must fix ourselves to the unchanging realities of God in order that we might thrive, rejoice, and cherish the many challenges intrinsic to a life full of change. James 4, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas do you not know what will happen? Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know what to do today. Do it. There's things you don't know. Do what you know to do. Many of you in here have a burden. Allow God to cultivate that, but allow God to lead you on a circuitous route if necessary to bring that purpose about. The great secret to thriving through change. This is a good one. This is a good one. I'm going to read you a scripture to answer that question. Whoever hears these sayings of mine, says Jesus, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And it was a great fall. You choose the leaven of the Pharisees and you will fall. You choose that idea of this world that either rejects the change of the Spirit of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit that wants to alter you into the image of Jesus, and it wants to be self-serving and gratifying to you. You will die. But if you choose the leaven of the kingdom of heaven that will come in, and though it might seem small and work in small areas of your life, will overhaul the entire existence of who you are and grow you up into a mighty plant of renown in this generation. See, the kingdom of heaven will change you. The devil wants to change you. Change, is it good or is it bad? Well, if you go God's way, change will change the world. 
We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.